The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I hope you've had a great morning. Um, Over the past several weeks, uh, we've been looking at Joseph's story and a couple things. One, um, elementary kiddos here, I love you're in this room. You actually get a kind of a cool deal. So we've been in Joseph's story in Genesis for a while. You guys just get to pop in at the end. So that's kind of cool. You get to see how it all works. I'm glad you're in here, though. Um, Listen, before we get into it, I want to say something really briefly about our pace. Uh, Let me explain that. So um, we here at Stone Oak, we preach through books of the Bible, and we love it. It is a great joy and privilege, and, and we walk through books of the Bible together as a church. And if you were to look at your Bible, you're going to see all kinds of books you're going to see poetry, you're going to see narrative, you're going to see history and proverbs, you're going to see letters, you're going to see all kinds of books. And each of these books or genres, we approach a little bit differently here. And and let me give you an example. Narrative or story. We try our best here at Stone Oak to, to, when we are working through a narrative, we take larger sections of it at a time. The reason we do this is because we want to try to avoid breaking it up as much as possible so that we can see the fullness of the story developing and unfolding, and and we don't want to miss the bigger picture, the whole and the power of that narrative. So we take bigger pictures at a time, but other genres, we we move and we will move significantly more slowly. Um, Another example, I cannot wait. For this, next week we are stepping into the book of Titus together as a church. Um, Titus is, what a joy we get to look at this. This is a New Testament letter, epistle, and I, I looked ahead. We are going to be probably in the first chapter for over a month. Shows you the difference of pace when we get to different genres in our Bible. Now, I say this because of two things. One, just I want to invite you to join us for Titus. It's going to be just an incredible time in Scripture, and Titus deals with healthy homes and healthy leaders in those homes, healthy communities and healthy leadership in those communities and healthy churches and healthy leadership in the church. And so I hope you're going to be able to be with us each and every week through that. But um, secondly, I wanted to give you a heads up because as we come to the end of Joseph's story, we're going to look at a relatively large section of, of Scripture together. And we're going to be moving fast because we want to see the way this ends and we want to see it end well. Um, so we're going to be moving quickly. Although we are going to be covering a bigger section and kind of quick, uh, quicker than normal, um, I want to encourage you and challenge you to, to read this text on your own and even with your community groups, because although I'm going to be moving kind of quickly to get the bigger picture, you're going to be able to camp a little bit better um, throughout the week. Um, but with all of that said, this morning, uh, let, me, let me invite you to turn with me to our place in Genesis 42. And um, this morning, as we look at Joseph's story, we are going to look at the fact that what we believe shapes what we do. 
What we believe will shape what we do. Um, and while you're getting to your text, let me get you caught up. Like I said, we're dropping into the end of the story. So our story, Joseph's story, begins a 17-year-old boy who was taken and thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold as a slave, while his dad, Jacob, mourns for him and weeps for him because Jacob was told that he was killed by a wild animal. Talk about tragedy in this house. But God was working, and he was sovereign in in this. He has this wonderful plan. So Joseph makes his way to Egypt, and it's not accurate, actually. Let me rephrase it. God gets Joseph to Egypt. God's plan is unfolding and getting Joseph right where he needs him. But this roller coaster ride just continues for Jacob, or for Joseph. He gets to Egypt, and he's put into the service of Potiphar in his house, and things are awesome until they're not. He does so well, he's successful, and then he's lied about, falsely accused, thrown into prison. And so he's put into prison, and there in prison, things seem to turn a corner. He starts to do well. He he meets these two men, and he interprets their dreams, and Then those two men leave and promptly forget him, and years pass, year and another year pass, with him sitting in prison, being falsely accused, locked away in prison. And then finally, finally, Joseph is taken out of prison, and he's taken out, he's pulled out, released from prison to come and interpret the dream of Pharaoh himself. How cool is that? And so Joseph, God has a plan, gets him, God's plan gets Joseph before Pharaoh, and then Joseph begins to describe exactly what's about to happen, that there will be seven years of prosperity, good crops, good food, plenty, followed then by seven years of harsh, terrible famine. And so Joseph describes what's going to happen. And then Joseph gives this plan to Pharaoh. He said, now here's how we're going to overcome this. What we're going to do is we're going to save up in the, t- in the years of plenty. We're going to just bank it, save it, so that when those years of famine get here, that we will be good to go. And Pharaoh likes what he hears, and he puts Joseph in charge of it all. So we have this 17-year-old boy in a pit brought all the way up to the second in command in the most powerful nation of the time. And we ended last year, or last year, last week, um, where those seven years of plenty had come and gone, and the famine was here. And that famine didn't just impact those in Egypt, but it impacted Joseph's dad, Jacob. It impacted Joseph's brothers. It impacted Joseph, Joseph's family, his own people. And so, Our text, chapter 42, begins with the family, Joseph's family, learning that, hey, we're not going to make it. And they learn that Egypt, hey, things seem to be going well. They have grain there. And so to save the family, Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends the brothers, kind of. He sends the brothers minus little Benny, the baby of the family. Little Benjamin, um, Ben stays back. He says, Jacob, you have to say, I've been down this road before. 
Like, I've been down this road before. I don't want to lose the baby again. And so he sends the brothers. And as they get to Egypt, I want to read this to us. But before I do, I want to read something from just a few chapters earlier. Um, as this saga begins, do you remember Joseph's dreams? All right, so this is what it says in chapter 5 of, uh, or chapter 37, verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and he told his brothers that dream, and they hated him even more for it. But then if you read the text here, it says, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, yours gathered around it to bow down before my sheaf. And the brothers did not like that. They said, are you telling me you're going to rule over us? You're going to reign over us? Do you indeed to rule over? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And that would eventually leave them them to sell him off. But with that in mind, let's come to our text, verse 6. Verse 6 of 42 says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, ruling Don't miss that. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came, and what did they do? They bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. This was a moment when Joseph's dream was coming true. Now, his brothers had no idea who Joseph was. They didn't recognize him. Joseph was all kind of Egyptianized, right? They didn't recognize him, and he was, you know, way older. They didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized them. And more than that, look at verse 9. Joseph, what did he do? He remembered the dreams that he had of them. So in other words, not only did Joseph recognize them, but Joseph recognized the moment, what was happening, the way God was bringing this full circle. Joseph Seize it. And at this point, let the games begin. I don't know how else to say this. It's like Joseph just, ha- just gets this weird thing and wants to have fun and play with his brothers here. Because test after test after test, he just, he's having some fun. Verse 9, um, he accuses them of being spies. That's awesome. He says, look, the only way you're getting out of here is if you go and get for me your, younger, your youngest brother. In other words, let's see if you do to him what you did to me. Go get your youngest brother. Then he tests him even more. He says, not only that, I don't want you just to go get your youngest brother. I want you to leave one brother here. So, you know, Simeon, hang back, man. I'm keeping you as ransom. Then go get Ben and then come back and then I'll know you're not spies. By the way, Um, I think we can so easily relate to the brothers here with what we're about to see. They stand before this man. They didn't know it was Joseph. They stand before him, and you get this sense of how much guilt they were wearing on their shoulders. Um, Listen to this in verse 21. Not knowing this was Joseph, right? They say to themselves, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul, we caused it, and he begged us and we did not listen, and that is why distress has come on us. They felt it. Reuben says, you know, didn't I tell you not to do it? He didn't listen. And now there is a reckoning for his blood. 
there is this shame, this, this guilt that is, they feel the weight and the guilt and the shame of their sin for what they did to Joseph so many years ago. It had clung to them all those years. And church, that is exactly what sin does. If sin is not addressed and covered by the grace of God, it causes this guilt and shame. And the enemy loves to remind you of it. It could be years down the road, but that weight just clings. And this is why as followers of Jesus, and this is why we stand so boldly on the truth of Scripture in Romans that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That's why we stand on this, because sin clings. The enemy wants nothing more than for you to live under that weight. Let me just add to this. Ultimately, he doesn't just want you to live under that weight. Ultimately, the enemy wants you to die under that weight. But the gospel tells us a different story. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's come back. Let's, um, let's see what happens here because as Joseph's brothers, they're leaving, Joseph, here he goes again, getting kind of squirrely. He fills their bag with grain. That's nice. And gives them all their money back, puts all their money, loads their bags with grain and money. And when they realize this, they're absolutely confused, as they should be. Like, what is going on right now? They're just confused. They get home and they tell their dad, and even more confusion, what is going on? But in that moment, you can see the fear of Jacob just rising up. He had already lost Joseph. Now he fears that he just lost Simeon, and now they're telling me that they want to take baby Ben. It's too much to take. You know what? The famine was so severe that there was no option. So Jacob is forced to take action. Again, God has a plan. So through fear, the brothers are loaded up with a little extra money, just in case, and with little Benny, little Benjamin as well, and they go off to Egypt. Now, when Joseph sees them coming to Egypt, he throws a party and a feast for them. Joseph sees them coming, and he, and he says to his brother, he sees his brothers, he sees little Benny, and he asks about his dad. They respond, and they say, he's well, he's alive. And then the text says that, that they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves, and he lifted up his eyes. And, and listen to this. He saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. And then listen to this. He hurries out for the compassion, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. It's a heavy, overwhelming moment. And it's in this moment that they continue to eat, and I love this because the men, they looked around at each other in amazement because portions were taken off of Joseph's table and given to them. And I love this because it says, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. <laughs> Benjamin didn't throw me in a pit, so I'm giving him five. Anyway, so they drank and they were merry with him, and there was a good time around the table, but it's not over. It's not over. Joseph, as they were leaving, again, let the games begin, right? He takes one of, these, one of his expensive cups, 
slides it into a bag as they leave. Not just any bag, but they slide it, he slides it into little Ben's bag. And then shortly after they leave, he calls his armed men and he says, go get them. And so they go and they overcome them, they bring them back, and then he then accuses them of theft. He accuses them of theft and he says, just empty your, out your bags. And through confusion and sorrow, they find the cup as it tumbles out of Benjamin's back. And as the brothers hear, they, they plead for Joseph. What can we do? What can we do? And Joseph, my goodness, says, only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall stay and be my servant. All you others, go in peace. It's just wrong. In other words, leave Benjamin here. Leave Benjamin here. Test after test after test after test. And it's at this point that our text gets us to the critical moment, the critical scripture, the turning point as the brother Judah steps up to the plate. I want you to look at this in in chapter 44, starting in verse 18. It says, um, Oh, my Lord, please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. In other words, you are powerful. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but then he goes in and he says, remember when you were asking about our family, our dad, and so forth, our brothers? Remember when we told you the whole story of our family? Remember that? And it was at this point that Judah shares the whole story, the reason why Ben means so much to their father, the reason why Benjamin did not come at first. He shares about his father who says in 27, you know that my, my wife bore me two sons. One left me, that is Joseph. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, I will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. In other words, I cannot bear it. I cannot bear it. And then listen to Judah's words. This is the pivot. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your, your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, his life is bound up with the boy's life. And as soon as he sees it, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then he says, 32, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain. Let me stay instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his, with his brothers. He says, Take me instead, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the moment that causes the pop. This is the moment when, after hearing this, hearing the change in Judah, hearing the change in his heart, hearing the way that he was going to give himself up for the good of his brother, give himself up for the good of his father, Joseph pops. He could not, the text says in verse 1 of 45, he could not control himself. And it was at this point he says, look, I am Joseph. 
I'm that one who you tossed into a pit. I am the one who you sold, and I am alive. And hearing this, what a mix of emotion for these brothers who say, oh no. The fear that must have been, the shock, and probably thinking, well, now it's time. Now I get all these tests. Joseph is about to exercise some vengeance here, and it's long overdue. But no, I want you to listen to Joseph's words. So Joseph said to his brother, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold, right? That happened. You did that. But listen, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For famine has been in the years, these two years, they still had five more years to go, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Church, that is the sovereignty and the providence of God. That was his plan, and it was unfolding. And I just want us to consider this unfolding plan that we just saw. Because Joseph had every right in this moment to gloat. He had every right to just say, you know what, it's time. It's time for some revenge. Dig a pit. I want him to know what it feels like. Like He had every right and all the power to do it. But what did he do? Why didn't he respond this way? How was it that Joseph could have responded like this? I think our text told us. I propose to you this morning that Joseph was able to respond like this because of his understanding of who God was. In other words, it was Joseph's theology that shaped his response. I believe that our responses to the things of life are so deeply tied to our theology. It's important, follow me here, a right understanding of God and who He is will lead us to a right understanding of ourselves and who we are, and a right understanding of who God is and who we are will lead us to have a right response as we encounter the ups and downs of life that we face. And the flip side of this is also true. If we have some weird, if our view of God is off, if our view of ourselves are off, as a result, our responses in our life are also going to be off. Our responses to the things of our life are so tied to our theology. Let me give you an example. If we believe, if we believe that our God is distant, for example, if we believe that our God is distant, if we believe that He is, that he is removed or Maybe he's just not involved. If you believe that, then you will start to believe that it is up to us, up to you to fix things, to solve things, to make the way, to fend for yourself. And when you believe that, when you believe your God is not involved, and when you believe that it's up to you, when you believe that, when you believe that God is not there for you, it's no wonder you think you need to be there for you. When you believe that, your responses are an overflow from your theology. 
All of a sudden, you respond out of fear. Your responses are often out of self-preservation and vengeance, often selfish. Your responses are an overflow of your theology. What you believe about your God matters. Let me give you another example. If, if you're here and, and you start to question God's goodness, you question whether or not, is he really good? Is he a really a good father who wants good things for his children? Is he really good? If you question that, then it's so easy to start to feel and to see and to experience bitterness in your own heart. It's so easy to start to believe ourselves as the victim who just can't catch a break. Woe is me. It's easy to get there when your view of God is that he is not good. And when we believe that, when we constantly play that woe is me card, when we believe that, our responses often come from bitterness and they don't lead us to forgiveness or to grace. Our responses are an overflow of our theology. What we do is a response to what we believe so, having said that, church, what do Joseph's responses here reveal about his theology? Joseph was able to forgive instead of avenge. He was able to see his place in a bigger story instead of playing the victim. He was able to see the providence of God instead of becoming bitter. What do these responses show about his theology? Church, I believe it shows everything. I believe it shows how Joseph truly believed in the sovereignty and providence of God. Joseph is able to forgive, for example, because he understood that although people will fail us all the time, and although people will hurt us and make mistakes, none of those mistakes, none of those failures are outside of God's perfect will and plan. He was able to forgive because he knew God had a plan, and his plan was good. Joseph was able to not stand there and accuse, or to grow bitter, or to play the victim card, because he believed God was sovereign, that he had a plan, and it was good, that it was God who sent me here, not you. He believed that he was a part of a plan that was unfolding. And after so many, many, many long years, Joseph says to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, it was God who sent me here before you. His response was from his theology. He believed God was sovereign and believed God was good, and he then responded like a child of God who believed that their father was sovereign and good. So, if you were to take an inventory of your responses in your life, over the last week, last maybe today, um, over the last month, years, if you were to take an inventory of the way you respond as you examine your life to the ups and the downs, the way you respond to crisis, the way you respond to the good and to the bad, and the way you respond, if you were to take an inventory, what do your responses reveal about your theology? What does what you do reveal about what you believe? Now, I want to be clear here because I am sure that there are times 
when you just go off the rail and you just like just lash out pure sin, just where did that come from? You just go off the path. In times like that, church, there is forgiveness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We confess, we repent, and we walk in forgiveness. There is forgiveness of our sins. But church, I'm not talking about those weird off-the-wall things. Those are going to happen. But what I'm talking about is, as you do an inventory of your life, I'm talking about those things that are repeated. The things that you see rear their ugly head. You look back over the last year and you see these responses, maybe for the good, maybe for the bad, and you see these responses, just these ongoing, repeated responses that come up over and over again. Chances are the responses in your life that are repeated are the symptoms of a deeper root issue. They are the symptoms of a belief problem. If you have ongoing response problems, it's it's an indication that there's a theological problem. What do your responses tell you about your theology? Do you live in fear and anxiety? You may struggle with your belief and understanding of the sovereignty of God. Do you respond in shame and guilt all the time? Defensiveness. You might be struggling with your belief and understanding of the forgiveness and goodness of your God. Do you find yourself just so defensive, constantly firing back and fighting the battles for yourself? You might be struggling to trust and believe that your God is sovereign and good and has a plan Your responses are an overflow of your theology. And here through it all, Joseph's life, his story, his responses, they continually point us back and drive us back to the thing we've been saying on repeat for the last several weeks, that our God is sovereign and in control. You are not an accident. He is never caught by surprise. He is never caught off guard. Not only is he sovereign, but he is good. So Joseph, he brings his family to Egypt, and we see the hand of God just going to great ends to save his people. And what started so many years ago is finding its completion here. Um, In the last part of 46, we see Jacob and Joseph reunited. How incredible is this, the joy that would have been here. I love, if you read this text, I love, you get this impression, Jacob is like, look, I can die now. Like, I'm good. It doesn't get any better than this. He's just overwhelmed with joy. I can go now in peace. I love this. And, you know, at the end of the final chapters of Genesis, we see Jacob blessing his kids, and we see him blessing uh, Joseph's little boys. And in the final season of his life, although Egypt has been pretty good for him, in the final days, season of his life, he longs to go back to that land of promise. He says, look, don't bury me. Bury me with my fathers. Don't bury me here in Egypt. Bury me, not here. Bury me with my fathers. And so they do. And I want us to look at something together, this this scene in Scripture 
right after Jacob is buried. Um, and as Joseph and his brothers travel back to Egypt, it says, when Joseph's brother, brothers saw that their dad was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive them and of their sin because of all the evil. Scoundrels. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. When Joseph heard this, he, he, he wept. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to him, Listen to this. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. No getting around that. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I want us to see something here, church. Sin. It seeks to divide and to tear apart. Years after years later, almost an entire lifetime had gone. And in the shame and the guilt and the weight, it just did not leave them. And again, church, that is exactly what sin does. It clings. Scripture says that we're slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin. And what this means is we're slaves to, one, the power of sin, meaning we all sin, we all fall short, we all fall, we're, we're frail, we fail, right? But not only are we, we're not slaves to the power of sin through Jesus, but we are also, church, not slaves to the weight of sin, the guilt, the brokenness, the shame. See, sin clings to us, both power and the weight. I said earlier that the enemy wants nothing more than for you to live under the weight of your sin so that you would be just like Joseph's brothers. Years down the road, still there, still living under the weight of their sin. And the enemy would ultimately want them to die right there. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to place ourselves in the shoes or sandals of the brothers here. And I want you to consider the good news of Jesus Christ in light of the story of Joseph. Because as we do this, as we think about the brothers who are saying, oh no, is it our time to get finally what we deserve? As they think about it, they, they, they think, you know, it was, it was what we did that made Joseph go through all of what he went through. Oh no. As we think about that, we have to realize, in light of the gospel, that it was in a similar way our sin that put Jesus through what he went through. That it was our sin that put him on the cross, that he bore on the cross. See, Joseph, his brothers were standing before him with this nagging realization that it was their sin that did this. And in the same way, we stand this morning... Under that same realization, as we look to Jesus, as we remember him, it was our sin that put him there. I'm reminded of the second verse of How Deep the Father's Love, one of my favorite songs. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. 
Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. See, the gospel calls us to start with that same realization that the brothers realized, that 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 was me. But the gospel does not leave us there. Because just as Joseph, right, was sent by God at the right place, at the right time, Scripture says in Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, the perfect timing, the perfect plan. Scripture says, born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. And don't miss this truth. A few verses down, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Here's, here's what I, we need to see here. Scripture says loud and clear, yes, church, it was your sin that held your Savior on that cross. And at the same time, Scripture also says loudly and clearly that there is now forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Through Christ and His work, you are forgiven, that you are no longer a slave to the power or the weight. When Christ died for you, He conquered the power of sin. And when Christ died for you, He bore the weight of that sin as the wrath of God was poured out on Him and not you. So that in your life and in your death, it is now for freedom that Christ has set you free. Scripture says but in Romans, but God shows His love for us, demonstrates His love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, I want to point out one big difference between Joseph's story and Jesus in the gospel. And that is because Jesus came willingly. He wasn't thrown into a pit. He willingly gave his life for you. And he did that knowing what he was getting with you. So now scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why is there no condemnation? Because Jesus took your condemnation. He conquered the power and he bore the weight. The gospel is so good. And as we close, we have talked about how our theology shapes our response. And this is absolutely true when we consider and we think about the gospel. Because when we understand what our God has done, when we understand that in his love he sent his son, when we understand that Jesus willingly laid down his life, bore our sin, and gave us forgiveness of sins, then we're able to understand that we can now walk in forgiveness. And when we understand that we have been set free, that theology, that understanding of who our God is and who we are, that will lead us to a response. 
And maybe you're here and you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have already responded to the gospel. You have placed your trust in Jesus. You have responded to Jesus in faith for the forgiveness of your sins. My prayer is that you never stop responding. You don't graduate from this. This is what we daily respond to the gospel. We daily, including this morning, my prayer is that we would respond to the gospel together. And if you're here and you've never responded to the gospel, my prayer is that you would see and that you would understand who your God is and who you are in his eyes. And that your response would be an overflow from that, that you would respond in faith and trust this morning. My prayer is that no matter who you are, what brought you through these doors, that you would not leave here without responding to the gospel. And I want to ask, just as we, as we finish, I want to ask if you would bow your head and close your eyes with me. Lord, we come before you right now understanding and realizing that it is all because of you. It is all because you loved us. It is all because you sent your son to die for us while we were still yet sinners. So Lord, in this moment, um, I just pray that you would prompt our hearts that we may respond, that we may respond in faith and trust, that we may respond in worship, that our theology would have a response. In Jesus' name, church, as you are still reflecting, I want to read the lyrics to the song that we're about to sing together, because I think this preaches it well. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom.